You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today, I'm excited to welcome Tony Raven to the podcast. Tony is an experienced technology transfer professional and the former CEO of Cambridge Enterprise, the commercialization arm of the University of Cambridge. With over 20 years of experience in the field, Tony has been involved in numerous technology transfer initiatives, including the creation of over 100 spin-out companies and the successful commercialization of cutting-edge research. He is also a fellow of the Institute of Physics and a member of the Institute of Directors. Welcome, Tony. I'm so excited to have you on the air. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. And let's go ahead and jump right into it. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the trend of tech transfer becoming a central plank of national economic policies. It's really been interesting to see how this approach is gaining momentum globally. But what do you think are some of the potential implications of this trend for tech transfer? Yeah, I think we're for tech transfer, we're at a pivotal moment in its history. Um, and I don't think we've um, created enough awareness yet of exactly how powerful it is uh, coming off the back of the pandemic. You just look at what our response would have been to the pandemic without uh, the university research and the university action behind it. We wouldn't have had the vaccines. We wouldn't have had the diagnostics. We wouldn't have had the uh, genetic monitoring of the variants. We'd have uh, John Hopkins with their monitoring of the numbers, uh, diagnostics, new therapeutics. The whole thing really has been built around university research. And that's university research, which you can't do. You can't switch on in a moonshot program in 12 months. It's taken decades of research to build the knowledge and understanding of these systems to be able to know what to do in those circumstances. But also having the ability to then translate it into uh, things which have saved millions and millions of lives around the world in a very short order. It, show, it gives lie to the statement that universities are slow. <laughs> yeah, but thank goodness they are slow because, and they've had this basic research going on for, like you said, for decades. Yes, but we got it out into a worldwide distributed vaccine with the help of commercial partners in 12 months. Yeah. Unheard of. Uh, totally unheard of. So, Tony, do you think there are any particular policy changes or global events that you believe have played a significant role in bringing around this change? Well, I say the pandemic is is the stage yeah. that set it and the need to recover the economies. And if you look everywhere, um, there's a lot of talk about investing more in research and investing more in tech, tech transfer. Uh, so you've got the Chips and Science Act here. Uh, we've just had the UK government has reorganized, so we now have a specific department for science, industry, and technology to focus on this. And the same thing's going on around the world. And it puts the universities and the tech transfer offices right in the spotlight center stage. And I think that is both an opportunity, but it's also uh, quite a challenge and could be a threat. So what are the, some of those opportunities and threats that you see? Well, I think uh, universities have always been a little bit peripheral 
to the world. Um, I always said universities have been like museums and theatres. They are nice things for a civilised society to have. <laughs> but what we have a phrase in the UK, what have the Romans ever done for us? So for the man on the street, the woman on the street, what has technology transfer ever done for us? And I think um, Oren's talk this morning at the conference, where he brought it down to the personal level, what it meant for him and his father and uh, the interventions which came out of university, which which changed his life. It was a really powerful story. It was one of the best descriptions I think I've heard of impact of tech transfer outside of the pandemic. I absolutely agree. And we've got to be get better at being more like Orin in doing that. And communicating. And, and talking yeah. about, not about the science and the technology and all the intricacies of the processes we go through, but the impact we've made on people's lives because it is absolutely massive. So that's the good side. We've got to tell it. But the other side is, and for 20 years now, the UK government has been putting money into funding technology transfer in universities, but it comes with a price. It comes with a price that they want to know that the money is being well spent, that they're getting results from it. So we have to do metrics every year um, and report them. And that's quite an onerous exercise. Very onerous, yeah. Everyone sort of... Uh, complains about it. But if you think about it, it's unreasonable that those amounts of money in the US, they're talking $3 billion going into tech transfer, that money goes in without any accountability for what it do does. And the politicians who are behind voting this want to tell the stories. When they're out on the road, they want to tell the stories of uh, how their policies, the money they put into this have affected the lives of the people standing in front of them. So I think we have to be realistic about it. That that's the price we have for coming center stage. So can you think of some strategies that can be used to address these challenges and take advantage of these opportunities? Well, I think we have to um, make sure that uh, we make the most of the opportunity given to us um, and not squander it. I think we have to be also realistic about uh, the downsides that come with it and we just talked about metrics etc and just accept that don't fight them and we've got to become really good at telling the stories of how what we're doing is making a difference but we do have the problem that they say from lab bench to patient is an average of 17 years yeah, it's a very long time so it's one of those things where sort of closing the loop real time Good. So we've got to be able to get good at sort of uh, justifying a lot of what we do, which is on intuition. We think this is going to come good. And as an academic uh, said to me once, it takes about 17 years for the industry to realize we were right all along. That's a long time to wait to find out that you're right. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit, Tony, and get your thoughts about the policymakers and government officials who are responsible for shaping these national economic policies. When it comes to prioritizing tech transfer, what do you think are some of the key considerations they need to keep in mind and how can they design policies that are effective in achieving intended goals? Well, I think one of the big issues, and this is again where we've been very lucky in the UK because we've been through governments of multiple political flavors and they have all kept a consistent policy on this. In politics, it's always sort of the nice new initiative that's going to be announced. And it's all short term. This isn't a short term business. So, so keeping them on track and giving them a, 
an ability to sort of meet that sort of new shiny policy sort of itch that they have while maintaining the stability of what we do to enable us to take a long-term view on what we're doing is important. If we don't do that, uh, pharma and everything like that will go out the window, life sciences, and we'll all be down to sort of uh, IT software things, which can be turned around in three or four years. Yeah, exactly. They have a very short shelf life. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, it's clear that collaboration between tech transfer professionals and policy makers will be really the key to ensuring that these policies are effective and meet all the needs of stakeholders. How do you think tech transfer professionals can make sure that their voices are heard and that their expertise is taken into account? Well, I think one of the things is we need to, and we haven't been very good at pulling together the evidence for what we do. Um, I'm running a session tomorrow, and it's all about this persistent question of what is the right equity stake to take in a spin-out company? And if you just look at uh, the policies across the universities, they're all over the place, which means that nobody knows what the right number is. And a lot of the challenges, and we're getting particular challenges in the UK and Europe at the moment, I know you have the anti-Badol people here in the United States. Oh, yes, States. they're very vocal. They've been vocal for years, and they continue to be uh, ever more so. But I had a light bulb moment when I realized that all we were doing was arguing opinions. I had an opinion of what the right number is. Orin has a right, an opinion. Leslie in MIT has an opinion. Nobody knows what the right answer is. There's no evidence there. And we have people on the other side with their opinions arguing, and arguments of opinion can never be won. So I think it is, um, and tomorrow we'll be showing the first uh, data coming out, which which is what is, there was a very good study done out of Stanford Law School, which was what is the relationship between royalty sharing policy and uh, outcomes, and they found there was no relationship. <laughs> My. Um, and uh, so we've got the first one coming out saying, what's the relationship between equity share that the university takes and um, the outcomes? And I think that type of evidence, uh, the data, this is very preliminary. It's a small number of universities, but if we can sort of expand those types of policy evidence studies to actually give evidence to the discussion, and then we... We will probably still vary because every deal is different. The whole circumstances are different, but at least there'd be much more consistency than we have at the moment, which goes between sort of 5% and 75%. So can you give us a sneak peek about what the data showed? Uh, that one I'm going to decline to do because <laughs> uh, Zoe has uh, been doing that data and analyzing it. She shared, with it, shared it with me last week, and I am not going to steal her thunder. This is going to Fair be- Fair enough. Fair important enough. data, the first time it's displayed, she should get the glory of doing that. Fair enough. Well, then let me ask you, as we look ahead to the future, tech transfers will obviously continue to play a significant role in national economic policies, but there are also many unknowns about what the future may hold. So what emerging trends do you expect to see and how might they impact the ways that businesses and universities and governments, for that matter, approach tech transfer? Now, that's what I always answer. There's, there's a very famous quantum physicist, the founder of quantum physics, who said prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. And I try not to make predictions of where things will go. 
Um, why do I do that? I, I do an, a, a talk and an exercise where I take people back 15 years and say, okay, what are the major things shaping our society today that were predicted 15 years ago? And mobile computing, cloud, autonomous vehicles, AI, uh, battery technology, all these things. Yeah, they were around. I mean, we had uh, the Apple Newton in the 90s, which was basically a precursor of the iPad. It's not the ideas weren't there, but uh, nobody was expecting them to become mainstream. And uh, suddenly things happen. Social media suddenly pops out of the woodwork. Many of the other things suddenly pop out of the woodwork, which have changed our lives in ways which were not predicted. Even So if we can't predict 15 years in the future, how are we going to predict 25? I had to at least try. But there's, there's another side of it, which is there's a very good book, which I recommend to people called The Luck Factor. And it's written by an academic called uh, Richard Wiseman. And he did research into why are some people lucky and some people unlucky. And he came out with four teachable factors, which actually made unlucky people lucky and lucky people luckier still. And one of those factors was keeping an open mind. We had a... Uh, UK government minister who set up his eight great technologies program. These were the eight great technologies which were going to change the future of the world and the country which uh, had to invest in. And I said to him, you need a ninth. And his question was, well, which one have I missed out? And I said, all the things you haven't thought of. <laughs> That's a great answer. It's uh, true though. Because when you, when you do these eight great technologies, all of your funding schemes are focused around those. Exactly. And you come to the left field. Uh, and it doesn't fit with any of the criteria of any of the schemes to get funded. And we've got, that's where I think we can't predict where things are going. Um, what we can do is keep an open mind to the opportunities and follow them through when they present themselves to us. I mean, in Cambridge, uh, there was an academic there in chemistry who was uh, Shankar Balasubramanian, who was uh, researching the chemistry of DNA. And all his colleagues were saying, why are you wasting your time doing that? It's a boring subject. Everybody knows all the chemistry. <laughs> Go and do something useful with your time. Oh, that's a terrible thing to tell somebody. <laughs> yeah, Cambridge is sort of quite uh, good at doing that and sort of uh, putting pressure on people to, to be good. But um, he connected up with a new uh, person joined the university who'd come in from BP, British Petroleum, and it was a spectroscopist. And they sat in the pub talking, and on the back of a beer mat, they sketched the way that we sequence DNA and genomes today. That's an amazing story. So nobody was expecting it. And that's my experience through all my time. It's not the uh, use-driven research which uh, produces the interesting stuff. Yes, it will do the next iteration of your uh, jet engine whatever, but it's actually the real changes come from the unexpected results of curiosity-driven research. So, Tony, I wanted to ask you, you had an amazing career in tech transfer. You were uh, had over 25 years of experience. Um, you were involved in numerous technology transfer initiatives, and you were involved in creating over 100 spin-out companies. Tell me a little bit about what your career in tech transfer has meant to you. I've said, and I this is not just saying it, this is actually believing it. It's the best job in the world. And why is that? You get to work with some of the most brilliant minds in the world in some of the most brilliant ideas. You get to talk to people who are 
sort of you really sort of sit there thinking, wow, can you really do that? That in itself is extremely uh, sort of rewarding. It's all a contact sport. So one of the things I said to my team when I had a team before I retired was, if I see you in the office, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm paying you to go and sit and have coffee, to go and sit and have lunch with these academics and just talk to them, to go and attend the, the seminars and listen to the seminars and sort of chat before and after, uh, build those relationships with them that um, lead on then to doing things without sort of going in sort of what have you got to for me to technology transfer today. Uh, so there's all that side of the human side of it. Then at the end of it, you get the opportunity to say, uh, do you know the NASA story about uh, JFK going to NASA? No, I'm not familiar with that one. It's probably apocryphal, but uh, the story goes that JFK went down to NASA and uh, as he's walking down the corridors, there was a janitor wiping the uh, the floors and he went, stops and talked to the janitor and said, so what do you do here? And the janitor said, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And you're that janitor and you get the satisfaction that janitor, when the man landed on the moon, felt such an immense pride and satisfaction that he had been part of enabling that to happen. Sounds like you've loved every minute of your career. And you mentioned before about um, it being a contact sport. And do you think you, you know, if, if you were still working now, given we're in this age of, you know, post COVID and working remotely and a little less contact now with hybrid work arrangements, do you think you'd, you'd still find it as interesting? Yeah. And I think actually the interesting part is we've, we are still trying to work out how to do that. Exactly. And I think this conference is a, is, is a great example of that. I mean, I've described it as it's like coming to a school reunion. Absolutely. The last one I came to was in 2019, where it was also in Austin. Same here. And then I was due to, I was in Canada on my way to San Diego when it was cancelled. And I haven't met people in real life since. So it's been a fantastic event getting back together. But the other side of it, during the pandemic, we had a great democratization of the conferences and events. So back in Cambridge, one of the things we did was we had an arrangement where anybody in the team could, uh, or in the university if they wanted to, could dial into a uh, presentation, sit and listen to it. And so we went from sort of, okay, what's our budget for autumn this year? How many people are we sending? Who are they? To, hey, anybody can benefit from attending the conference. So I think we we there's a new future to be created. We don't know how to do it yet. We've got to be creative. We're going to have to do a lot of experiments and a number of those will fail. But uh, that's what being entrepreneurial, being innovative is about. And exactly. I think that's what we, we've got to, f- there is a new model out there to be discovered. We haven't yet discovered it. Yeah. And I think it, it provides an opportunity for tech transfer offices, maybe in some countries who, because of a variety of different reasons maybe can't come to conferences like this, but still can benefit from the content and still have, you know, Autumn has allowed, um, figured out a way to allow networking virtually now through the streaming that they're doing at this conference. So, you know, maybe there's a way to expand the reach um, by allowing this kind of hybrid conference model between uh, streaming and in-person. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just conferences. I mean, one of the great things, um, 
in the past, if I wanted to go and see something, I would sort of uh, get on a plane and I'd fly there. Right. If it was in the States, and I've perhaps gone to Wharf, for example, to see what they were doing, I'd think, well, I can't just fly there and fly back. I have to arrange a whole load of other visits to go. During the pandemic, I could drop in on one of their online events and to watch it. If it was boring, I could uh, drop off, um, off off the line, not not asleep. <laughs> and uh, but I could I could experience it for just giving up one hour, and that was again that's a great democratization of of our profession. And I think there are ways out there. I mean, um, one of the uh, groups I belong to, they just have certain things set up where it's basically set up around a, a web page with tables in it. And you can see who sat at the table. So you can just go in and then it does a little window of everyone and you chat online. And then you can leave that table and go and join another one and all the rest of it. And that, it sort of is not as good as the sort of serendipitous bumping into people that I've been doing all day today. But uh, I think we can find ways to democratize it while keeping the that personal interaction there. Absolutely. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's been well. Thank you for talking to me and and, and uh, listening to all the uh, all the people out there listening to the podcast. It is one of the best jobs in the world, and uh, I've retired from it. And I'm just looking forward to seeing everything that you're going to do over the next uh, ten years. Just I wish I was younger and could be part of it. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.